0: alone. I'm like. I pray that اشهد ان محمدا رسول الله اشهد ان محمد Hay I love
1: له سبحان الله نتوكل عليه ونعوذ به ونستنصره ونتوسل ونقود لانور السماوات والأرض اللهم اجعل لنا نورا واجعل في لساننا نورا واجعل في أسماعنا نورا وفي أبصارنا نورا وفي أهلنا نورا وفي بيوتنا نورا اللهم عظم لنا نورا فإنك أنت نور السماوات والأرض نور على نور ونصلي ونسلم ونبارك على محمد النبي الهادي الامين المرسل رحمه للعالمين خاتم الاسر اجمعين وعلى اله واصحابه ومن اتبعه باحسان الى يوم الدين The entire world today is occupied in one way or another with what is going on in the United States with the elections in the United States. And there is so much to reflect upon and so much to learn from what we observe and what we can reflect on, what we can study. Recall the Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala intended for a Muslim to take the world as a school. The world in which we exist is but a constant, enduring, unrelenting school for a Muslim with basirah, for a Muslim that sees with the light of God, a Muslim that fails to learn from what Allah has created, what Allah has created in nature, what Allah has created in physical laws, what Allah has created in metaphysical laws, what Allah has created in the unfolding of events in history. A Muslim who is oblivious to this and that thinks that they come to the world somehow because of Islam they have become an exception to existence. Rather than a witness to existence, is a Muslim that has gone astray and that has steered away from the covenant that binds us to our Lord, the covenant of being God's viceroys on earth bearing witness bearing witness means keen observation keen reflection and a keen ability or at minimum a keen willingness to learn from everything that unfolds around us In fact, the Prophet sallam, in a well-known tradition, underscored the importance of Muslim social involvement. as the narrative goes, although I believe this narrative is more anecdotal than literal, the Prophet is sitting with, the, with some companions and if funeral passes and Muslims comment that the person who had died was a pious person and pray that Allah forgives the sins of that person and blesses him with rewards. And the Prophet ﷺ, is reported to have responded, wajibat, 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 wajibat. It is an affirmative form of du'a where the Prophet is basically saying, may Allah accept, may Allah accept. It is not like some people have translated it to mean, it will be, it will be. But it is rather an emphatic dua. May Allah accept, may Allah accept. And as the report goes, then another funeral passes by And the people sitting with the Prophet commented that this man was not a good man and was a man of ill repute and that they believe that this man is not going to attain salvation and is going to be doomed. And the Prophet is reported to have repeated at that point, wajabat, wajabat, may Allah accept, may Allah accept. And in all the commentaries on this hadith through the ages, you will find the same understanding of this hadith. A Muslim is a fully involved human being. And the reputation a Muslim leaves behind is important, and the social perception of a Muslim is important, and that the Prophet was underscoring that social norms. And social standards do matter. There are numerous other theological questions that arise in this report, but I don't want to deal with them now. Where this hadith, we find that it is often discussed is in the most interesting place. And it has to do with tyrants, despots, and unjust rulers, and people who were known to be inequitous and unfair or unjust in their lifetime. The fact that you lived your life Even if people hypocritically didn't confront you with what they really believed about you, the fact that people condemned your injustice, the the fact that people thought of you as an unpleasant human being who tends to take the rights of others and violate the rights of others matters. And it matters to God subhanahu wa ta'ala. That when the Prophet والسلام, says wajabat wajabat of course the Prophet is not deciding for Allah. The Prophet's judgment cannot stand for Allah's judgment that's elementary. But rather the Prophet is underscoring that the reputation that you leave on this earth matters. And it is part of the legacy. But similarly, the act of witnessing necessarily means also involvement. You cannot bear witness, shuhada' lillah, you cannot bear witness for Allah. And remember that the covenant that we have with Allah is to bear witness for Allah. You cannot bear witness for Allah if you're apathetic. You cannot bear witness for for Allah if your piety, if your piety makes you oblivious to what takes part in the world. You cannot bear witness for Allah if your Islam becomes a vehicle of avoidance. You cannot bear witness for Allah if somehow your spirituality softens or deadens your perception of the suffering of others or your comprehension of the suffering of others. In a word, You cannot bear witness for Allah if you lack empathy or if you are disinterested or if you are so self-involved under the excuse that all that matters to me is my relationship with Allah and nothing else, you are oblivious to what happens to people around you. The act of bearing witness for Allah weds weds a Muslim to the principle of empathy forever. You work to be empathetic, but to be empathetic, you have to know. You have to have knowledge and to have in order to have knowledge you must have interest you cannot know what you are disinterested in so in everything there are lessons and in everything we muslims are called upon to reflect to ponder to think about the implications of divinity and al-uluhiyya and to think of the challenge that Allah has put before us—kunu ibadan rabbiyun, be godly human beings. Such a momentous challenge to be godly human beings. How can we rise beyond ourselves with all our weaknesses, all our emotional and psychological hang-ups, all our material and physical challenges to only come closer to you, Allah, by being godly? To be among those Ashab al Leti here, illa Rabbiha Nazira or Ashabil Wujuhin Nazira, illa Rabbiha Nazira. Those with brightened, glorious, shining, luminous faces in the hereafter that gazes upon its Lord as the Quran teaches us, what could be more godly than to rise to that status? Juxtaposed to this, Ashab al-Wujuh these faces that have become white or pale with worry and anxiety and fear because it fears its fate in the hereafter. The juxtaposition, if you reflect on it and you understand it, is jarring. To the extent that you strive towards godliness on this earth, to the extent that you strive towards godliness and on this earth, in the hereafter, you are either among those who actually gaze upon the Lord and your face is luminous with happiness or among those who have gone pale because of anxiety and fear about what is going to become of you. But in order to become godly, what is the first attribute of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Something that we all know, ar-Rahman, ar-Rahim, the compassionate, the merciful. Can you be compassionate? Can you be merciful without empathy? So you cannot meet the challenge of Rabobiyya. You cannot meet the challenge of godliness without embedding ingraining your soul with the attribute of empathy, with the quality of empathy. And empathy needs knowledge. It is not real empathy if it is built upon avoidance and ignorance. If the way that you can make peace with your world is to be oblivious and disinterested in the world. In other words, to avoid knowledge of things. Well, that's not much of a challenge. And that's cheating. You're actually cheating yourself and cheating Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because you're trying to take a short road you are failing in the challenge of godliness, a the challenge of godliness again, is to be godly, and to be godly is to be Rahman, merciful and compassionate, and also to be the just, the just person. But that is impossible without empathy. And real empathy is based on real knowledge, not avoidance. So the American elections, and there are a lot of things that we can learn from the American elections a lot to reflect on and a lot to ponder. But I'm going to take just a few elements that I think are of special interest for Muslims around the world. Muslims notice the type of power a country that is able to change the commander-in-chief, the type of power that it has all over the world. China can change leaders and the world is disinterested because China is a closed box. Russia can change leaders, and the world is disinterested because Russia is a closed box. In the United States, the world is interested because of this procedure this institutional framework that allows a commander-in-chief to hand over power to another commander-in-chief every number of years or in a set number of years after a recognized public process the rules of which are well-established and known to the universe. And that handover of power will determine a lot of things around the world. The remarkable thing is that Muslim and non-Muslim can observe what takes place in the United States and see a president who complains about votes that were sent in by mail and whether votes that are counted after the date of elections will be counted or not, or votes received after the date of election will be counted or not, whether that sitting president protests or doesn't protest There is a process that proceeds like a train. Even the president of this country cannot stop this process. And the president of this country, in order to complain about this process, can go to court, but when all is said and done, you notice that there is a dynamic within the country itself that will force its will even upon a sitting president. Even if this president doesn't want to hand over power structurally, institutionally, if this president has lost the electoral votes, in other words, has lost per the rules of the game in the United States, that president will be forced to hand over power. At the same time that this president sends out tweets complaining that this process didn't go his way, or complaining that there have been massive voter fraud, or complaining about conspiracies against him as a sitting president. You turn on humorous media outlets in the United States, and you find journalists very openly speaking about the legalities of the process, speaking about, often speaking about the absurdity of the president's complaints, often talking about how groundless these complaints are. In other words, and again, hearken back to be godly human beings. I want you to imagine a different scenario, a scenario in which this sitting president can pick up a phone, and if he doesn't like the way a discussion is going on in CNN, by a simple phone call, can have everyone involved in the discussion thrown in prison the very same night. In fact, that president can simply change the constitution to allow him to stay in power for another 10 years and possibly even for life. Imagine a process in which this president would quite simply not just imprison everyone that doesn't agree with him, but decide that instead of two presidential periods, why not have four? Why not have five? It's a very simple point, but a very obvious point. Which is closer to the principle of godliness? A president whose word is not immutable and divine, or treated as such, or a president whose word effectively is immutable and divine, because no one dares to disagree with it. Which is closer to the ideal of Rububiyyah, The presidents of so many Muslim countries, if Mohammed bin Salman or Mohammed bin Zayed or Abdel Fattah al Sisi of Egypt, They decide Turkish products should be boycotted. Everyone in the country repeats, like parrots, Turkish products should be boycotted. The vast majority of people don't even understand why Turkish products should be boycotted, but the leader said so. The leader decides... That Qatar is an enemy and everyone says, yes, Qatar is an enemy, but Israel is a friend. Everyone says, yes, but Israel is a friend. We don't care about Jerusalem anymore. Everyone says, yes, we don't care about Jerusalem anymore. Which is closer to the Rububiya ideal? Seven years, someone like Abdel Fattah Sisi has been a president in Egypt. According to the Egyptian media and the Egyptian religious establishment, with all the Dar al and Azhar and the great shiuch of Egypt, all these big names, seven years, he hasn't made a single mistake. According to them, they haven't disagreed with him once. They haven't noted a mistake on his part once. In a country like Egypt, you can be an atheist. You can go on Egyptian public TV and say, I am an atheist. You can even criticize the Prophet Muhammad like Yusuf Zidane did. You can criticize the companions of the Prophet like Yusuf Zidane and Ibrahim Ibrahim Isa has done. But you cannot criticize Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. How many Muslim countries are like that? Which is the closer to Rabobiyya? What strikes me the most about what is going on in the United States is that we have a sitting incumbent president. This president is saying whatever this president wants. But the process marches on like a train. Not even the president has the power to stop it. And I find this closer to godliness. The fact that this president and his supporters can say what they want, but I can turn on any television station and in less than a minute, find people who are criticizing the positions of this president and the claims of this president and the assertions of this president. And I contrast this with the demi gods that we have all over the Muslim world where the ruler is effectively more sanctified and more sacred than God and the Prophet, ﷺ. And as a Muslim, it breaks my heart. Because what I see in the United States is closer to godliness than what I see in all over the Muslim world. There is a very insidious theological principle at work here. And that is a theological school that goes around, that has become ever more increasingly popular not just in the Muslim world, but even in the non-Muslim world, in all over the West, including the United States, that tells us that تتبع حفوات الحكام والإساءة إلى الحكام والتشهير بالحكام وسوء الظن بالحكام that if you think ill of your ruler, your leader, if you criticize your ruler, if you even, you're keen to scrutinize the conduct and behavior of your ruler, to know what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong, that all of that is sinful. And they don't notice that what they are teaching is nothing short of shirk. Because it impeaches the ideal of rububiyah. Yes, there are many anxieties about American democracy. Yes, there are many anxieties because what makes democracy work are civic virtues. They're virtues. In other words, it's conduct above and beyond the law so that when you have a president who's an incumbent loses the elections, this president is a lame duck for a couple of months. What makes democracy work is that for that lame duck president to welcome the next president who they lost to and to politely say, I am here to help if you need anything, to hand over the reins of power and to hand over knowledge of classified information and to hand over the keys of power. That simple civic act is what allows a democracy to live. And then once you step down as an incumbent president to allow the new president to rule without challenging, in other words, without attempting to relitigate your loss of power and their gain of legitimacy, counting on the fact that this new president is not going to be there for life. This new president is going to be there for another period of time, and you will have an opportunity to defeat that new president in due course. So straightforward that it blows my mind when I hear not just non-Muslims, Because I hear it from non-Muslims all the time. Muslims are not ready for democracy. But I even hear Muslims pontificate about how Muslims are not ready for democracy. Well, let me tell you, then you're not ready for Islam. You're not ready for Rububiyah. You're not ready for Rububiyah. If you make your ruler divine, the way that Saudis make Muhammad bin Salman effectively a god, and the Emiratis make Muhammad bin Zayed effectively a god, and the Egyptians make Abdul Fattah Hassisi Sisi effectively a god, then you're not ready for Islam. You're not Muslim. You're false Muslims. In the modern age, with the type of power that the state can leverage, it's either you accept democracy or you accept shirk. There's no other way. And I don't need to get into all the pontifications about liberal theory of the state and all of that. The straightforward rules of democracy, disputes about who in power has a set process, an electoral process that decides who represents the people for a period of time, for the process to repeat itself on irregular intervals, it's very straightforward. What is there to be ready for It is the same type if people would go back and read the literature during the colonial era, the colonizing states would always say that the colonized are not ready for freedom. The anti-free slave movement would always say We would love to set slaves free, but they're not ready for freedom. If we free slaves, they will starve. We are doing them a favor by continuing the institutions of slavery. Such is the nature of despotism and tyranny, and such is the nature of evil and the demonic in general. It convinces you that you are powerless to change. The demonic will always convince you to despair in Allah's mercy. That is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes those who despair in Allah's mercy as the truly inequitous. the nature of the demonic will tell you your institution of bondage, your institution of servitude, your institutions of injustice, your institutions of suffering and misery not only are inevitable and predestined and unchangeable, but that you deserve it. That you have nothing to hope for in terms of throwing off the shackles of servitude and bondage, because you deserve to be a slave. You deserve to live in misery and injustice. You deserve to live in equity. When do Muslims wake up? Remember when Jafar ibn Abi Talib was asked by Al Habashi in Abyssinia what did your prophet teach you? The prophet's cousin, Jafar ibn Abi Talib, when the Abyssinian king asked him, what did your prophet teach you? Among the first things that Jafar ibn Abi Talib mentions, He says we were people where the strong oppressed the weak. Then came this prophet to teach us how to stand up against oppression. Elementary, basic. You can stand up against oppression by violent rebellion. Or by creating a process that allows you to remove an oppressor without having to resort to arms. Do you need to be a genius to see how obvious this is? <laughs> الحمد لله رب العالمين وسبحان الله العلي العظيم والصلاه والسلام على محمد خاتم الرسل والانبياء اجمعين وعلى اله واصحابه واتبعوا باحسان الى, واتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين Remarkably, remarkably, after the French government reproduced the pornographic images of the offensive cartoons drawn representing the Prophet in sexual acts. The French government didn't simply say, we respect the right to freedom of speech, and we can't be involved. You want to attack the prophet, attack the prophet. You want to respond to those who attack the prophet, respond to those who attack the prophet. As a government, we are not involved. No, the French government actually reproduced the pornographic images on governmental buildings in France. And therefore, the expression of pornographic images Representing the Prophet became a governmental act, an act adopted and validated and fully embraced by the French government. To my knowledge, And I spent some time to research this. The French government has never reproduced any of the offensive images of Jesus created in French and European culture, because there are offensive images of Jesus. The French government has always just stood out of the conflict between the religious and those who mock religion. The French government has never reproduced mocking images of Moses or of even Buddhas or any other religious symbol. The first time it happens is with Islam and with the Prophet Muhammad Macron appears on a Jazeera channel. And in that interview, on a Jazeera channel, in which, of course, there is a French channel that broadcasts in Arabic. And he could have appeared on the French channel that broadcasts in Arabic, but he appeared on a Jazeera because he knows that a Jazeera is the most popular media outlet in the Arabic-speaking world. And in a highly publicized interview, the bottom line is the president of France, the prime minister of France, refuses, or the president of France, refuses to apologize, but claims that the French government stands as a neutral party. Well, that claim is disingenuous because you reproduce the images. This claim is disingenuous because when a 16-year-old kid killed a school teacher, you took that as an act representing all of Islam, in quotes, radical Islam. A 16-year-old who had a history of disciplinary problems and clear psychological trauma. No one talked about that. A 16-year-old who had no affiliations with any radicalized groups or radical groups, and in fact, didn't have any associations with any local mosques or Islamic centers or whatever became a symbol for Islamica and the Islamic threat in Europe. While shortly after, when two muhajabas were stabbed near the Eiffel Tower and killed, and shortly after, when a couple, a man and a woman with their child were beaten in France by a group, no one talked about Christian terrorism and no one talked about, the, 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 prime, the, the French president didn't even bring it up. It was considered a common crime. In Paris, every year there's about 700 murders. The act committed by the 16-year-old was not considered a common crime. It was considered a representative crime, a crime that represented an entire people. While hate crimes that are at an all-time high all over Europe are always treated not as representative crimes, not as symbolic crimes, not as ideological crimes, not as crimes of identity politics, but are always treated as common crimes. But the real travesty is the purpose for which the French president appeared on the Jazeera channel was not to apologize, but to tell Muslims don't boycott French products. And if you boycott French products, then you are fanatics and terrorists. This is at the same time that Saudi Arabia, the Emirates and Egypt are leading a major effort to boycott Turkish products. This is at the same time that these same countries have boycotted Qatar. This is at the same time that these same countries are telling us that we should no longer boycott Israel. The French president appears in Al Jazeera to educate Muslims. That if you no longer buy, you play yogurt and Labashkari cheese, then you are an extremist Muslim. What is remarkable and what deserves comment is that at the same time, Religious figures in the Emirate who supported the boycott of French products were arrested. In Egypt, a sheikh that gave a khutbah in which he said the only way we can defend the Prophet is to boycott French products was arrested. Mustafa al-Adawi. In Saudi it was made very clear that you must advocate in Khutab Jum'ah the boycott of Turkish products. But if you dare advocate the boycott of French products, you will be arrested. At the same time, I tell you, A Muslim jurist must be an educated human being. If you are not properly educated, you are not worthy of the name jurist. I wanted to take you for just quickly to a 1905 law in France. In 1894, there was an event in France that became very famous. It was known as the Dreyfus Affair. A Jewish police officer was unjustly and unfairly accused of spying and treason, and was attacked by the French media and condemned and convicted, only for it to become very clear shortly afterwards that the only crime this police officer committed was that he was Jewish. And in response to this, the French passed a law in 1905, which basically said that the state must not be involved in advocating or promoting any religion or against any religion, or for any ethnic group, or against any ethnic group, or for, against race, any race, or for any race, or against any race. In other words, the 1905, the law of religious neutrality, and ethnic neutrality, and so on, by the state. That law was chipped away not just now but indeed the law was chipped away when when France banned the wear of the wearing of headscarf the hijab in public French schools and banned the face veil, the burqa, anywhere in public. When you ban the hijab in public schools, then any family that wants their children to wear the hijab has no option but to send their children to private schools. And private schools that would allow their children to wear the hijab. Now, Macron and this new government is proposing a new law that will amend the law of 1905, the so-called law of secularism. But the law clearly targets Muslims. Among many things, Muslim institutions would not be allowed to receive any donations from anywhere outside of France. At the same time, if they receive donations, or even a license from a public institution in France, they have to sign onto a charter of, so-called a charter of secularism, where they attest to their loyalty to Republican values. At the same time, if you do not agree to that charter with the French government and you're not allowed to receive funds from the outside and you're not allowed to receive funds from the French government, if you don't agree with your charter, then obviously you would be forced to shut down. Imams would have to be trained through governmental controlled programs that engineers the Islam that the French government would find acceptable, and only these imams would be allowed to serve in French institutions. In other words, you can't get an imam who, even if an imam has a doctorate from Princeton University. No, it has to be an imam trained by the French government. Engineered. If, but the law is not just intrusive in this fashion. In one of the most absurd provisions of the law, if you are If you have to see a public doctor and you are, you as a woman, you say, I want to see a female doctor. So in other words, you refuse to be seen by a male doctor. That is considered a criminal offense, a felony. And if you are a doctor and you decide to only see male or female patients, that's also a criminal offense, a felony. Now, here is the rub about these laws. Before this proposed law, the French government had closed down Five, uh, sorry, closed down 15 prayer locations, four Islamic schools, 13 cultural centers, and about 30 mosques. Conducted hundreds of inspections, seized millions of dollars from Islamic institutions. all under the guise of fighting terrorism, racism, and anti-Semitism. So up to date, if the French government accused you of racism, the French government, which is among the most racist government in the world, or anti-Semitism, or of having any type of connection to terrorism, they did their inspections, they seized your money, they closed your your centers, and so on. Under the new law, this will be extended to closing down any Islamic institutions that exhibit lack of respect for, for human dignity, psychological, or physical pressure. What does that mean? If I'm raising my child and telling my child, you have to pray five times a day, is that psychological pressure? If I'm teaching my daughter to wear the hijab, is that psychological pressure? Not only that, but this new law would force Muslims to send their kids to public schools where they cannot wear the hijab, where by law they cannot pray they cannot observe any of the religious dietary rules. They, by Under penalty of law, they would have to go to public schools. While Christians and Jews would be allowed to keep their private schools, Muslims would not be allowed to maintain their religious schools. One part of Macron's justifications and explanations for the law caught my attention. Of course, we all heard the parts where Macron is saying, well, you know, we need these laws because we need to fight Muslim separatism. And I've talked about this in the last khutbah. I don't want to repeat myself. We we need these laws to fight Muslim separatism, to fight Muslim radicalism, to fight Muslim extremism, all that stuff. All of that stuff is rhetoric and dogma and demagoguery and I'm accustomed to it, nothing new. But there was one part that slipped out that caught my attention. Macron said that these types of laws are needed in Europe in order to resist what he, this is his words, to resist the post-colonial Muslim super-ego, or the post-colonial super-ego of Muslims. Post-colonial super-ego of Muslims. What does that mean? Post-colonial super-ego of Muslims. So if I am Muslim and I'm keenly aware that you, France, as a colonial power, you've slaughtered seven million Algerians, that you've slaughtered millions of Malis, that you control the wealth and riches of Mali and West Africa and Algeria and Morocco and Tunisia, that these countries, to our very day, cannot trade in the world market, unless they use French currency and their economies are entirely dependent on France. And if I, like if I was black, as blacks we start thinking of ourselves as former slaves and we are forming a superego as former slaves. Or as a colonized people, we start thinking of the colonial legacy and we want what people went through in the colonial legacy, and we start forming a superego on that basis. So as Muslims, we start thinking of the fact that wherever you look in the Muslim world, It is not, as Macron said, the borders, and as Samuel Huntington said before him, the borders of Islam are bloody. It is the entire world of Islam is bloody, and it's not because of Islam, but because Muslims, like all human beings, resist domination and subjugation. If you would have given Muslims integrity, dignity, liberty, there would be no blood. The world of Islam is bloody because Muslims are oppressed because of the colonial legacy. Because till today you cannot decide who runs Mecca without the approval of the West. You cannot decide whether Palestinians get a homeland without the approval of the West. You cannot decide whether two Muslim countries sign a mutual defense agreement without the approval of the West. You cannot do anything in the Muslim world without the approval of the non-Muslim West, the former colonial powers. Is that what Macron means by A post-colonial Muslim super-ego? What can be a more eloquent verbiage of imperialism, domination, and racism than this? It is sad when you see a democracy c- commit suicide. France, as a democracy, is a c- committing suicide. And when you think of the actual impact of radical, so called radical Muslims, the Daesh people, the ISIS people, even with the terrorist attacks in Vienna. They make a lot of noise. But the injury they inflict is not a direct injury. It is the injury of the politics of fear and anxiety and the politics of identity, and the politics of race, and the politics of ethnocentrism, and the politics of religious bigotry. In other words, what Daesh does, what these terrorists do, is they do just enough to make you commit suicide. They don't kill you. They just spark the thing that makes you, as a culture, as a... Nation as a civil society commits suicide with your own hands. I'll close inshallah with this because I underscore it and I will underscore it inshallah till the day I leave this world. A'alim, the ulama, of long time ago, we called religious scholars ulama, scientists. A very, law, very heavy term. People of knowledge. The ulama means the people of ilm. Ilm is not just to know what is in the Quran and the sunnah. The ilm is to understand the entire universe, the physical universe, and the metaphysical universe, to testify in truth for your Lord, and to seek to achieve the ideal of godliness on this earth, the ideal of rububiyyah. May Allah allow us to seek the past and achieve it, inshallah. May Allah forgive our sins and guide us towards the true path and allow us to be a path of light and mercy and compassion and justice, Ya ya'azim. Allahumma afu Allahumma khfir lana, Allahumma arhamna ya Rabb, Allahumma ahdina ali akraba min haza rashada, وانصر الاسلام وعز انصر ال... الاسلام وعز المسلمين يا رب العالمين يا رحمن يا رحيم وتقبل منا امين امين يا رب العالمين يا رب يقرب العدل والاحسان واذ اذن الفحشاء والمنكر والبغي يعظكم ان تذكرون